0: Hi, this is Ken Tinkler with Carlton Fields in the Tampa office. I'm a shareholder in our development industry group, and my practice focuses on land use, environmental permitting issues, uh, elections, ethics, all sorts of interesting things in Florida. Our topic today is climate change and how does it affect the development industry. Uh, With me today is James Parker Flynn, an appellate lawyer in our Tallahassee office. Uh, James, did you want to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, Ken. Thank you for having me. Uh, As you noted, I am an appellate lawyer here in Tallahassee. But additionally, I practice in the environmental arena, both regulatory and litigation. I have an LLM in environmental law from Florida State. Um, And I've also done a fair amount of academic research, writing and teaching about climate change law and policy. So I am very excited to dig into this topic with you today.
0: And didn't you teach last semester at Florida State on environmental issues?
1: Yeah, I did. I co-taught a class on environmental law, the sort of broad survey level class on environmental, and we did a section on climate change law and policy. I'm hoping to do that again this upcoming fall. And in the past, I taught a standalone seminar on climate change law and policy over at FSU Law.
0: That's great. Uh, James, to to start off, can you give us the, the high level take on what is climate change?
1: Yeah, so climate change generally refers to a change in the state of the climate that we can identify, you know, through statistical measurements. And it can and has changed over time for a variety of reasons. So it can change due to natural internal processes here on Earth or from various external forcings that come from outside the planet. So for instance, There are slight changes to the Earth's orbit around the sun that occur cyclically. They can start to trigger a climate change. In fact, that's how most scientists believe we now uh, think the ice ages start and end. Uh, But as is relevant to our discussion here today, we're talking about anthropogenic or human-forced climate changes. And that is uh, changes to the composition of the atmosphere or to changes in our land use which have affected the atmosphere. So just to break it all down into terms that might be a little bit more simple, since the start of the industrial revolution, humans have burned a tremendous amount of fossil fuels, which have added uh, uh, just a massive amount of greenhouse gases, uh, primarily carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And additionally, we've made changes to our land use by destroying what we might call as carbon dioxide sinks or things that would otherwise pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And the result of that is that the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased greatly. It's gone from about 280 parts per million to now over 400 parts per million, and certainly will be increasing in the future. And so the, the result of that is that these increased greenhouse gases prevent long wave radiation or heat from leaving the earth. So, what, what happens is shortwave radiation comes in from the sun. Some of that is bounced directly back out. Some of that gets all the way down to the, the surface of the planet and is absorbed by the oceans and the land. And then some of that is reflected back out into space again. And the increased amount of carbon dioxide are preventing more and more of, those, of that long wave radiation from leaving. And this has left the Earth in what we would call an energy imbalance. There's more energy coming in than leaving. And so until that imbalance is sort of, uh, until that balances itself, the earth will continue to heat. It will start to exert more and more heat to try to get more long wave radiation out. And so as the earth warms, various parts of the climate system change as a result. So we see changes not only to the temperature of the air around us and to the temperature of the oceans, but we also see changes to the hydrological cycle and other changes to wind patterns and things like that and those are things that then separately impact a number of the uh natural and human built uh systems on the planet
0: well, i I appreciate uh you summarizing the science in, in that uh directive fashion that that's that's very helpful i think for Folks, to think about this from very simple terms in terms of how uh, heat is trapped and how heat escapes. If you're a professional uh, working in the development industry and obviously you you hear a lot of things, a lot of noise about the politics and uh, mixed with the science, what what do they really need to know about climate change?
1: Well, for the development industry, I, I would say that they need to know a few things. First, they need to know that the way that the climate itself Will, uh, climate change itself will impact their developments, right? So that's sort of the first thing we talk about. And there are a number of climate change impacts that will impact development. Uh, some of the biggest ones are, are pretty clear. Uh, so as the climate changes, one of the things that we're seeing uh, is more uh, intense hurricanes, we, we're not yet sure whether we're going to see more hurricanes generally, but we do know that the intensity of those hurricanes is increasing due to warmer ocean temperatures. And so uh, warmer ocean temperatures are driving stronger and stronger hurricanes, stronger wind. Uh, additionally, because sea levels are rising as a result of climate change, we're seeing a greater and greater storm surge from hurricanes. And uh, because of the increased temperature in the atmosphere, we're seeing more humidity, which provides hurricanes uh, more chances to accumulate and distribute rain uh, in the form of really heavy precipitation. And so we see these more intense hurricanes that can sort of hit land, right, and impact developments that are either being built or that have been built in a number of ways through wind damage, through flood damage, either from storm surge or what we often call compound flooding, where there's intense rain events and you have basically riverine flooding that is coming at the same time as storm surge is coming into those rivers and it causes massive inland flooding. And then you'll get events like Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Florence where they're just dropping tremendous amounts of rain. So even where there's no riverine flooding or storm surge flooding, you might see flooding. Uh, But even aside from hurricanes themselves, there's a number of impacts to developments that can occur. So there are flooding events that would happen absent of uh, climate change, or I'm sorry, absent of hurricanes. So that's just where areas are now seeing more and more heavy precipitation events. So rain is coming in more and more intense downfalls. Uh, that is certainly something that could impact development. We're seeing the temperature rise, which can potentially cause structural issues with new developments in the way that they're being built. Uh, so there, there's a number of ways that the actual impacts from the climate changing itself, can affect developers and development, and they need to be aware of that, and they need to be aware of the science behind the engineering and everything else, and how they're going to have to change those practices to keep up with a climate that is going to continue to change. There's not sort of a new baseline established that we can just say, here's what you need to do now. They'll have to follow those trends to make sure that as the as we move on into the future, and as things continue to change, the developments that they create are not only ready for today, but ready for, a different baseline that we'll be seeing in 20 years and then 50 years and 100 years. Additionally, developers have to really be aware of the regulatory changes that are occurring or that are almost certain to occur in the future as a result of climate change. So the ways that it will impact their industry, and and there's a number of ways that that could happen. Um, Changes to permitting regulations, changes to land use and zoning regulations. Uh, There could at some point be federal uh, statutes related to this. So there there are a number of different things that may impact developers, and they sort of need to be aware of as much of that as relevant to their specific area.
0: Well, it sounds like each of the players involved in a development project is going to be impacted, uh, that their profession is going to change over time. Uh, What comes to mind first is We're always worried about how are we going to finance and insure a project. And how do you see that changing as as time is going on here?
1: That is a a very uh, hot topic of research. But obviously, it's going to be very important for developers because they need to be able to not only insure their projects, but the people they sell to are going to be... Uh, need to be able to get insurance for those things, which will affect all of this. And what we've seen with climate change in the sort of insurance market is that uh, we think it's already having a tangible impact and will continue to do so. Uh, and and the most glaring example of that is flood insurance. And, and we're located here in Florida, so it's highly relevant for us. But for instance, the National Flood Insurance Program, which is uh, one of the primary providers, or at least one of the pri- primary mechanisms of getting flood insurance uh, to you know, protect yourself against these massive flood events, what we're seeing with these greater and greater hurricane events is a greater and greater burden on the National Flood Insurance Program, So such that it's run into debt issues, and, and President Trump in 2017, I believe, had to essentially forgive a substantial amount of that debt. Uh, and so, as a result, as these areas that are being developed are becoming more and more flood prone, the insurance premiums, if they haven't already increased, which in many places they have, are more likely to continue to increase uh, pretty substantially over time to ensure that there is a big enough pool of money to pay out some of these catastrophic losses that we see. Additionally, as the flood maps change, and right now the FEMA flood maps are, are a little bit outdated, I think most people would agree, uh, they're, they're based on flood scenarios from decades old information that really isn't relevant anymore. As those maps change in the future, more and more areas may be classified as, uh, you know, sort of high high risk areas. And once they're in those areas, those places are required to have flood insurance. And so you may see development in areas that previously was considered low to moderate risk and move to high risk. and now, all of a sudden, flood insurance is required. Uh, additionally, financers may themselves require flood insurance. And so the premiums are starting to go up as the sort of damage from climate change, not only in these catastrophic events, but other events, uh, increases and in their, in their payouts increase. They're starting to increase premiums. And as, as a result, that will affect, obviously, what a developer may pay or what the, the uh, end user may pay. Um, But I think what we might also see in in quite a lot of high risk areas is insurers that are just no longer willing to insure in those areas, which could really hinder the ability ability to develop them whatsoever to get financing for that. So the the insurance industry is something that all developers will really have to keep an eye on uh, moving forward as it's a very fluid situation right now. But uh, I think that the trend is clear that premiums are going to go up some areas will essentially become uninsurable, particularly if we see the worst impacts of climate change that have been uh, projected uh, by the various uh, reporting groups. So that is something to keep in mind. In mind. And additionally, one, one last caveat, uh, there was a study out from Harvard, I think last year, uh, that showed that in Florida, the lower elevation home values were increasing at a lower rate than higher elevation home values. And so we're already seeing that sort of getting baked into the market itself, which means financing for development in some of those lower elevation areas may just start to disappear. Those home values are still increasing, but they're not keeping up at the rate that the higher elevation homes are. So we may see less development in those areas simply as a matter of market choice, where people are baking this into their decisions about where they want to build and where they want to buy, because they don't want to necessarily have to deal with floods that require them to repair or rebuild their homes every you know decade or two or whatever it may end up being
0: well and thinking about our office footprint uh, it seems like new york and connecticut have had as many if not more of these storm events than we have in florida and obviously california has had its own unique challenges
1: yeah and i think that's you know a really good point when you look at this sort of new york area you know you don't have to be down here sort of near the tropics where we are up in New York with both hurricanes Irene and Sandy, or which at the time they hit, uh, were no longer hurricanes up there. But because of that increased sea level, you get stronger and larger storm surges in these, in these big storm events that can drive inland. And of course, flooding and storm surges really tends to be the most destructive part of hurricanes. It's the part that tends to affect the largest area. And so, yeah, you don't have to be in what you would consider a hurricane prone area to really experience really intense disastrous flooding and we've seen that not only as a result of these big storms but we've seen it in places like nashville in recent years and atlanta where just massive rain events in a very short amount of time have led to exceptional riverine flooding or other types of flooding that uh, are causing you know people to have to to repair and to rebuild and so again it, a lot of it gets back to those fema maps a lot of places think that they are not in the 100 year floodplain because of these FEMA maps, and really they, they might now be because those floods are not only happening every 100 years, they're happening every 5 or 10 or 20 years. And so a lot of areas that were previously sort of thought they didn't need flood insurance really will.
0: You had mentioned uh, impacts to permitting structures, and I'm thinking also of building code requirements. Are, are there examples of, of where you've seen changes made Uh, already?
1: Yeah, you'll see. So there's some, and and to give you some specific examples, the building code requirements in in themselves are likely to change. And and Florida's has changed a couple times in the past two decades uh, in relation to hurricanes specifically and and changing wind damage requirements and and things like that. But so much of the, the actual permitting changes happen, you know, at the local level. And it can be obviously tough to track thousands of municipalities across the country. But you know, we see things like in you know, Miami, for instance, raising the required height of seawalls where there's new construction. So it has to be higher than it was just a few years ago. In order to comply with that, you're gonna to have to build a higher seawall. Uh, we, we see things like that pretty frequently. Um, you see changes to, uh, for instance, uh, the coastal management elements of comprehensive plans that may try to discourage development in high-risk flood zones, so very low-lying elevations near near the water. And we've seen that in several comprehensive plans here in Florida. That element has been added. Um, and additionally, we see some other changes that you know they may not say climate change, but they tend to relate to those same issues. So they may be green building sort of initiatives or or resiliency initiatives. So we've again seen in Miami, uh, Dade and. An expedited permitting process for green building and buildings that comply with LEED certification and moving forward i think we're going to see a lot more of that both the sort of requirements for greater and greater uh, resiliency so that the buildings are able to withstand more and survive you know uh, bigger threats and maybe higher elevations off the ground uh, we'll certainly see that in coastal areas and we'll likely see more incentive uh, programs to to encourage developers to go ahead and start implementing those those measures now, as opposed to waiting until something happens. I
0: you know I've seen a lot of consortium kind of efforts between local governments, uh, especially South Florida, now starting up in Tampa Bay, where at least it, it appears different governments are trying to work together to come up with new plans, new permitting structures. Is, is that something you're seeing in other places as well?
1: Yeah, you see it in other places. And, and the Southeast Florida Climate Compact is really nationwide one of the leaders in that regard. And for obvious reason, they've been dealing with a lot of these sea level impacts sooner than other places. And so they've had to deal with this issue you know, way before anyone else, and frankly, don't have time to wait for state or federal governments to decide what they want to do. They say, we're going to band together and do this. And you, as you mentioned, there's one in Tampa that's currently occurring. You see some of these elsewhere where they're at least starting the process of trying to assess how is climate change going to impact our specific area? Because again, the impacts are going to be different in you know the Midwest than they are in the coast. Uh, there could be changes there related to aridity and changes to uh, whether the land is still arable, uh, changes to heat in the way that that's going to affect how uh communities need to be built and so yeah you're starting to see that and and the first step in that is always assessing how is this going to affect our area starting to come up with broad policy goals and then some suggested implementation that the members of the compact can start to actually put into place in their local plans in their local permitting and uh just a couple more examples of things you might see larger developments may be required to have more open space to try to account for some flooding Developments may be required to build more trees into their development to both mitigate uh, the impacts of climate change by you know, having more trees that can pull more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but also that provide more shade to hopefully keep some of these built environments cooler. And you're likely to see just more and more requirements for less paved area in developments. So yeah, these, these compacts are arising in many places now and Florida has really been a leader in that regard.
0: Well, and as you mentioned, the, the building code tends to change on uh, every few years as uh, technology improves, and, and this is always a challenge for a developer, trying to plan out a project. Uh, it, it sounds like we're going to be heading into a, a time period where there's going to be more and more changes coming at a more rapid pace. Uh, how, how do you recommend a developer stay informed on these kind of issues?
1: Well, there's, there's a number of resources that developers can use to try to stay informed on this. Uh, so, just to, to give you an idea, um, the uh, Columbia Climate uh, Law Center has a number of, uh, ele- of, a number of um, tools on its website uh, that relate to state and local resources, that relate to regulations, uh, both federally and at the state level. So that's something that can be really beneficial for them. Uh, the federal government has a uh, a toolkit on its site toolkit.climate.gov that has a number of resources for developers or that developers can at least look at to try to stay informed to make sure they're up to date one of the best resources on the internet is uh, a site called desire usa that's d s i r e usa.org which continually tracks Uh, various incentives related both to renewable energy but other sort of green building incentives uh, nationwide and you can click on your state and get a a list of them and they'll tell you whether they're federal incentives or state incentives or or even local incentives Uh, and then within florida there's the floridagreenbuilding.org which tries to also in addition to providing links to other places um, discusses the incentives in the state already for some of these green building initiatives
0: well, and that's a great point. Uh, it, thinking about this from a, a positive take on how developers can focus on the incentives that are out there. I know many of our clients have worked with brownfield incentives, with uh, LEED certification, uh, green building, and, and different concepts that also have a, a impact on what they can sell and what they can market. Uh, are there specific tax incentives, other incentives that you, uh, you would recommend a developer look into?
1: Again, what I, what I would recommend for the developers generally is to first go to the desireusa.org for their area and look at what incentives are available. There are uh, federal tax incentives. Uh, there's the uh, business investment tax uh, incentive that is, is still available that relates to the use of renewable energy in various projects. Uh, and that can be at both the residential and commercial level. So that's an incentive that was uh, renewed uh, in the past couple years. Uh, but then state and locally, you're going to have to see what is being offered there uh, because that changes pretty frequently. Um, but yeah, it, it will be a changing landscape for them. And so one of the best things that I would so- certainly recommend to any developer, and this is not just to try to encourage our business, but it's to stay engaged uh, with attorneys who practice uh, in the in the field, in the industry, but also in their area who can hopefully monitor the local and statewide incentive packages, and also help push for some of those. Um, and I think that the developers who attempt to sort of stay ahead of the game, the developers who are attempting to, um, to comply with these things early and often are gonna be the ones that are gonna see the most success. Uh, because if you try to kind of get around that and continue to build the old way, um, I think they're likely to see values decrease Uh, less financing for those uh, sort of projects moving forward. So I think the the creative developer is the one that's going to really thrive in this atmosphere.
0: A lot of proactive steps that can be taken to take on this challenge.
1: Absolutely. All right. Well,
0: thank you, James. I appreciate the the quick take here on what developers need to focus on, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about this topic again.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Thank you very much, Ken. You've been listening to Carlton Fields' podcast series with Ken Tingler and James Parker Flynn. To learn more about our capabilities for the development industry or our environmental practice, visit carltonfields.com. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening.